From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China, and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the U.S. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is episode three, China's strategic culture. When policymakers in Washington talk about competition with China, they usually describe the contest in one of three ways. Elite personalities like Xi Jinping versus Joe Biden, political institutions like the Chinese Communist Party versus the American system of government, or the global balance of power, like America the superpower versus China the rising power. These different approaches can help explain a lot about US-China competition, but they all have one weakness in common. They overlook China's broader story. Different nations tend to practice strategy differently because of their history, their geography, their ideology, and other factors. Political scientists call this strategic culture, and it helps to explain unique styles of statecraft and foreign policy. It's a simple and powerful reality, but all too often it ends up getting ignored in Washington. Not without reason, though. Elites, institutions, and power balances are fairly easy to quantify and track. But culture is more nebulous and subjective. It requires a familiarity with China's past in order to understand Beijing's behavior today and what it could do tomorrow. So what is the long arc of China's national story? How did it become a nation in the first place? How has its strategic culture changed over time? And what does all of this mean for Americans today? To get some answers, I'm turning to Michael Schumann. He's the author of Superpower Interrupted, The Chinese History of the World. He is also a contributor to The Atlantic and a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and most recently, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. He was previously a correspondent for Time Magazine, as well as The Wall Street Journal. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining the podcast. Hey, thanks Thanks for inviting me on. Fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving in here. So let's start with your book, Superpower Interrupted. You state in the opening pages that the biggest question of the 21st century is, what does China want? So I think this is a, a good starting place as any to begin with. What does China want? Well, to, to a great extent, China wants what it, what it uh, always had, or maybe a better way of saying it is what the Chinese leadership thinks that China always had. That's really to be a great power again. And when you, when you look at Chinese history, China was not always a great power, but you know, there were periods of an invasion and disunion and global disarray and civil wars and so on, so on, so on. But China was the dominant power in Asia for very, very, very long stretches of time over the last 2000 years. And uh, when the leadership today, and Xi Jinping you know, talks about China, and what's happening in China today, he describes this as a rejuvenation. In other words, a return or a restoration. He often says in his speeches that China was a great power in 
and China will, will be a great power again. So I, I think that the Chinese leadership sees what's happening today in that broader sweep of thousands of years of Chinese history. You know, we, we in kind of in, in the U.S. and Europe, we, we talk about China's rise as if it's something kind of startling and new and a little bit scary. And, and uh, I mean, that's because it, that's true within, within our experience. But when you look at it within the Chinese experience, this is an, another attempt at a return to greatness uh, after a period of weakness uh, that China has seen repeatedly in, in the past. So I'm, I'm curious in light of that about a couple of things. At number one, this desire and motivation to return to greatness, this idea of rejuvenation that you mentioned that Xi Jinping talks about frequently. I think that concept is pretty easy for Americans to get intuitively, right? Because if you look at America's strategic arc and story, the way that politicians ever since the end of the Second World War have talked about America's foreign policy, America's role in the world has been tied inextricably in many ways to the founding of America, how like the, the principles of independence, equality, liberty, all of those values are reflected in different ways in, in how America as a superpower has crafted its, its approach to foreign policy. You see that in international institutions, our philosophy about development, stuff like that. So I'm curious, what is it like in China's case? And I know this is a really big question, but I think it's it can be useful to dive in because sometimes different countries or different strategic cultures, when they say greatness, that can be played out in different ways. And that flows maybe from different origin stories, for lack of a better word. So could you, un, could you tease out and unpack some of that context for what China means when it says a return to greatness? Well, I mean... Some of that is just based on the pattern of, of Chinese history, that, you know, you have the rise and fall of dynasties, and you did have the fall of dynasties, that means you have the rise of dynasties. So, you know, from the Chinese perspective, there are political. This is what's really amazing about, I think, about Chinese history, is how, how frequently the political elite of China were able to rebuild the country into a great power after periods when, when it wasn't. I think that just that kind of pattern of history influences the way the leadership today thinks about China and, and where China should be in the world today. But also behind all of this is a, a political ideology that actually started to form uh, 3,000 3, years ago, no exaggeration. And it would shape the way that the old Chinese dynasties saw the world and saw China's place in the world. And, you know, this, this gets into some kind of controversial issues about, you know, what's called the tribute system, which uh, some historians will say, well, that really never existed. And some historians insist that it did. And we can go in, into this debate endlessly. But the, the bottom line, I think, in my opinion, is that China did have a specific form of foreign relations that was based in a specific political ideology. And in, in that ideology, China was at the top of a world hierarchy. China did not see the world as a bunch of, you know, equal, e equal societies uh, with diplomatic relations, you know, in the way that we kind of do in the modern West. The, the Chinese saw the world as, as a hierarchy of societies and that they felt because they were a great, great civilization, that they were basically at, at the center, because they were a great civilization, they were at the center of the civilized world. 
that to a certain extent that gave them a right to be at the top of this this pyramid of of people uh and that got into the system where you know if you were a foreign a foreign ruler a foreign society and you wanted to have diplomatic relations with china that you would you would have to go through at least a ceremonial process where you were acknowledging this superiority of, of china and this was the feature of chinese foreign relations going all the way back to the earliest earliest periods of the dynasties going back 2000 years and it remained that way through the last dynasty and i think this you know we we don't have a dynasty of course in in china today but i think this does influence the way the chinese still still see the world that the idea that the chinese have have almost a right to be a great power based on their history based on their the their civilization and uh when they, we talk about a rejuvenation and and restoration of chinese power I think that that's how they see it. The idea that China should basically be a leader should be above uh, above other societies. So I, I want to dive into the scope of what China means when it talks about this return to to hierarchical greatness, hegemony, whatever you want to call it. If you look at China on a map from the Qing Dynasty in 221 BC, uh, when China was unified, to now. You, you, you notice a general trend, which is China gets bigger and bigger and bigger. What is the limiting principle of how China views its return? Because Xi Jinping's made a lot of noise about Taiwan. And, and, and at least what, what I'm hearing coming from the Chinese Communist Party is comparing a lot of their borders to the Qing dynasty, the, the final dynasty before the dynastic system crumbled. So I think you have a lot of American commentators who are saying, look, if we just give Taiwan and give the Communist Party some breathing room and allow them to accrue something approximating the borders of the final dynasty in China's history, then maybe they'll be content. Maybe that will be for them the greatness they are trying to restore. Do you agree with that? And how do you think about the idea of, is there a limiting principle on what China means when it sees itself as a hegemon, as a superpower? I mean, it, it, it's a great question. I mean, if you want to go back to very early Chinese political philosophy, the Chinese did kind of have an idea of, you know, the Chinese, lead, the Chinese ruler being almost a universal emperor, that his power basically had no bounds, that he basically ruled the whole world, that because he was, after all, the son of heaven. And if you're the son of heaven, you know, you just can't kind of rub elbows with the other chiefs and, and kings and whoever, right? So. He had he had to have a superior status, and that it was part of his responsibility to bring the the wonders of Chinese civilization to the world, civilize the world. Over time, the Chinese came to realize that, of course, that's really not going to happen in real life. But uh, it it was actually a part of Chinese early political thinking. And when you get to the issue about what is the scope of China and what is the scope, well, you're getting into how how the Chinese have defined "quote unquote" China. And uh, what 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 does China look like? And the fact is that that has changed over time and expanded over time. You know what the the Song Dynasty and the Ming Dynasty would define as kind of oh this is proper China. This is where this is the the rightful borders of China is different than what the Qing Dynasty uh, did, and it's very different from what modern China thinks. And as you said, how China has been defined has enlarged over time. I don't think we can answer the question. What is the limit in terms of the geographic scope? Uh, what is what is the what is the the, the limit to where China sees its sees its power? 
Uh, I think when you get out of the geographic elements of it, I think it's very clear that they want to be a global power. When you think, when you see how they're trying to expand their influence, let's say at the United Nations, when you look at the uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, you look at how they're trying to gain influence in international or- organizations more broadly and in the global economy more broadly. I think you can paint a very clear picture that they're not going to be content in terms of their overall power to to be limited in a certain space to say, oh, well, China used to be mainly an East Asian power. And now, you know, maybe they'll be happy with that. I I think it's very clear from their actions that they that they they want they in the modern age with modern technology and and globalization that they want their their power to match that they want their power to be to be global, not local. Picking up on that observation, I think it can be really easy to smooth out the complexity of China's history and simplify things to there's been a constant ideology, a constant ambition, and it's been this one steady line with a steady slope that doesn't change, just moving inexorably in one direction, right? And the reality is history just it, it is never that simple. You, you preempted this when you talked about the cycle of, of yes, China has gotten bigger over time, but uh, it has been a complicated road of one dynasty falling, another dynasty rising. And I want to zoom in into that dynamic. What are some of the, the factors, not just politically, but from a civilizational perspective? How, how has China had so much resilience and survived so many dynastic transitions over, as you say, thousands of years? Well, you know, I first I, I think we should be clear that as, as as you mentioned that not all the dynasties are the same, and not they they, they didn't all have ex- identical foreign policies and identical views or identical definitions of what their 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 China should be. I mean, some dynasties like the Tang were far more expansionist than let's say the Ming. So there are no there there is no kind of simple line on this and. And the Chinese dynasty didn't see the world all the same way and didn't want to have relations with the world in the same way. But I think that there were some, some constants. And, and one of those constants was this very, very deeply held belief among the Chinese political elite, oh, century after century, that the ideal form of China was to be one big empire and was to be the dominant power in Asia. And this is an idea that that you know that basically started going all the way back to the Tez, the Qin Dynasty, you know, the, the the first imperial dynasty, as you mentioned, and basically continued through. And and you know, the, the power of ideas can be amazing. So whenever a dynasty fell, there were new leaders who would emerge who basically wanted to recreate the power of the previous dynasty, and they often measured themselves against the previous dynasties and they would often refer to themselves oh we're you know we're the new han dynasty we're going we're going to be the new new han dynasty we want the power of the of the, of the old han dynasty not every not every everyone who wanted to recreate the dynasty was successful and that's why you had in some cases periods of centuries you know the the gap between the han and then the tang dynasty was more than 3 centuries so some of these periods could be very, very long when China was not able to restore its power. But the idea was always there. And, the, I, and I think you can see that again in, in the modern leadership. They're not a dynasty in the traditional sense, obviously, uh, but they're you know, a, a communist state. But I think when Xi Jinping talks about the Chinese dream of rejuvenation, 
it's this similar idea that the Chinese political elite have had all, through all of this time, that the proper, the proper form of China is to be a, uh, a large unified empire uh, that is able to project its power around the region, I think, in the modern world, around the world. Something that you bring up constantly in your book, Superpower Interrupted, that, that gets into this dynamic is how China responds to, quote unquote, unequal treaties where their military capacity does not match their self-perception of greatness or their ability to translate civilizational superiority into political superiority. And, and you lay out a number of those cases in your book where that happened in different dynasties. There's one that I want to focus on in particular, and it's, it is still very prevalent in how Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party and even his predecessors have discussed China's return to greatness. And this is what the party calls the century of humiliation. Could you talk about that particular episode in China's history and why it is still so prevalent and important for understanding how China sees itself in the world today? Well, I mean, I think what I, what I found actually kind of startling myself is how China, when, when, whenever China was able to restore its, its power, that the new rulers basically wanted to kind of reimpose this Chinese, this kind of Chinese view of the world, reimpose this idea of China at the top of the pyramid. And when they were not able to do it, for as you said, they were not militarily or politically power, powerful enough to match this ideal image that they had of what China should be, it often created tremendous frustration and actually led to all kinds of conflicts and a lot of bad stuff actually in Chinese history. So, you know, you, you kind of see this, this pattern re recreating itself today. For the Chinese, when you talk about the century of, of humiliation, basically starting with the, the loss in the Opium War in the 18, 1840s, this was an incredibly jarring period for the Chinese because not only were they exposed to being weak militarily, and politically, but they were also started to question their own civilization. And this was something new. This is what I call my book, Superpower Interrupted. This is actually the, the interruption, right? China had lost many wars and been defeated on the battlefield many times, and dynasties had collapsed, and new dynasties weren't able to rise. And, and yet this kind of I, this ideal that Chinese civilization was superior and therefore China deserved a superior position in the world kind of survived all, all of this. And then you had the confrontation with, with the West and the Chinese ran into a, a new group of people who basically believed the same thing about themselves, that Western civilization was the superior civilization. And in the 19th century, it was the European powers that had the military might, the technology, and the economic resources and advantage to be able to back that claim up. So what happened in China as they became kind of prey to the imperial powers in the 19th century and into the 20th century, and the political elite and they looked at what was going on, and, and they started for the first time to question whether Chinese tradition could be the foundation for a new China, for a rebuilt China. And they started to look to the outside more than they ever 
did before. I mean, obviously, the Chinese borrowed all kinds of things from the outside world, including Buddhism. But I would argue that it was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that the Chinese locally were most active in looking at the outside world and, and trying to find ideas to, to resurrect the country and restore Chinese power. And this is everything from constitutions to democracy. Oh, and by the way, communism. I think this period was especially jarring for the Chinese because it knocked away all the pillars of their power, political, military, economic, and what was really the most long-lasting and most, most sustained, which was this, their civilizational power. That is fascinating. And, and that actually preempts the next thing I wanted to ask you about. You have this interesting passage in your book where you mentioned how Mao attacked China's civilization. And it's interesting hearing that answer because if, if you question not just your, your, your ability to bounce back, but if the thing that was your underpinning that allowed you to bounce back so successively over many centuries, your civilization, your cultural identity, if you start to doubt that, that truly is an existential position for any nation to be in. What is in that place today in China? What has taken the place? Is it communism? Is it, is it, is it uh, this idea of economic growth that the party has tried to guarantee its people? Is it nationalism? Is it a combination of all three? Or maybe even something totally different? I'm not sure the Chinese have figured that one out yet, honestly. Uh, and I think that's why, why you see the leadership kind of continually kind of changing its, its messaging over the years. So, I mean, I think they're, they're looking for the glue, you know, they're looking for the glue to hold society together. We're looking for the new, new ideas that are going to really solidify the legitimacy of the regime. And this is because, you know, the, the Chinese did a pretty thorough job of destroying their traditional society. And, you know, and this, is, this goes back to some of the radicals in the, in the May 4th movement and, and, and even earlier, the idea that, you know, our, our traditions are the reason why, why we've fallen so low. And, you know, the, one of the founders of the Communist Party actually wrote an essay, which was more or less saying everything has to go, everything about traditional China the ethics, the family system, the philosophy, everything has to go and be replaced by something new if the Chinese people are going to survive. So this is the this this is this was the mindset of the the reformers at the time. And this is the mindset of uh, the people who who led the Communist Party. And you know, here they are in, in the 21st century in a very different time, in a very different China that's been uh, tremendously successful economically that is that is growing in power and but at the same time i don't think they have found what the ideological foundation to all of this should be technically they're marxists and socialists and 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 xi jinping seems to be reinforcing that principle but for a lot of chinese who you know want to have want to have tech startups you know marxism may not necessarily be what's going to link you know link them to the government and to the greater society you know, they, the, the Chinese want to project their power around the world. Xi Jinping often talks about China has to improve its soft power. China used to have a tremendous amount of soft power in, in, during the dynasties when it was the main cultural force in, in East Asia. East Asia, to a great degree, is a, is a Chinese cultural zone. But, 
you know, that's been tossed out. So he keeps looking for, well, what, what is going to be the new form of this soft power? And they've played with a bunch of ideas, including restoring Chinese traditions. That's why the Confucius Institutes are named after Confucius. You know, that this idea that they're still trying to tap into some of these, these old traditional ideas that are, are familiar to the world and so well regarded by the rest of the world. But I, I, I think that when you look at what Xi Jinping is doing right now, he's trying to gain more control over the economy. He's uh, becoming more intrusive into people's uh, lives and in, into society and trying to be in more of an arbiter of what's right and wrong and what society should look like. I think this is still the Communist Party and the Chinese leadership searching around and scrambling for a replacement to a great degree of, of what was lost. So to bring this all home, I, I, I think it's helpful to ask what this means for American policymakers. And, and you wrote a fascinating piece in The Atlantic recently about why America is getting China wrong. What did you mean when you said that? Well, I, I get a sense I'm, I'm not in Washington, but I, I get a sense that in Washington, there's become a widely held belief that, that China's rise is inevitable. Uh, and that China is, a, is a basically a threat more or less across the board, economic, technological, diplomatic, ideological uh, in, in every way. And that basically the, the new focus of Chinese foreign, of, of American foreign policy has to be to somehow contain and contend with this, this overarching existential threat to the United States. Now, I'm not saying that that is not entirely not true. I think China is a threat to the U.S. I think China is a threat to democracy more broadly. But I also believe in ben, what Ben Franklin wrote, that nothing is, inev- nothing is certain except death and taxes. I think it's as dangerous to assume that China's rise is inevitable as to assume that it's, that it's not. I think we have to take a more nuanced view as to what is really happening in China. And we have to look at China and realize that in order for China to meet its ambitions, it has a lot of hurdles to overcome and a lot of problems to encounter. And, and a lot of this is with the economy. Uh, the economy is changing. They're entering into a period where they're going to be dealing with slower growth. They're going to be dealing, it's going to be harder to get the kind of gains in income that they have seen in the, in the past 40 years. It, it has to be an economy that's going to be driven much more by technological advance and productivity gains. And this is difficult stuff. And this is why uh, most emerging economies don't, don't become advanced, wealthy economies, because they're not able to do it. That's not saying that China won't succeed. But we, I think we have to start asking harder questions about, is China inevitably going to be a great power at this stage or not? And why not? And if it's not, then what is the real nature of this threat? A lot of the a lot of the way we we see the threat of China today is because of its economic challenge, most of all, and it's also perceived technological challenge. Well, what if that ends up not being the case? What if what if China cannot escape uh, from where it is and it remains kind of a middle income economy and it doesn't have the resources to really compete in the way that a wealthier country would? What is what does that what does that mean for the United States? What does that mean for China's role in the world? And then what does that mean for, for what American policy should be? I'm not going to pretend to know the answers to any of these questions, 
but I, I, I do think that we have to have a much, a much more thoughtful approach to uh, what China's future might be and what kind of threat China does and may or may not present going forward. And then what kind of American policy we should be crafted to deal with a China that they could have multiple different outcomes, multiple different futures. Final question, picking up on that thread. One scenario that you raise in that piece is that perhaps China is no longer growing economically. Uh, perhaps its military is continuing to grow. And perhaps, at least in the short term, its political influence is continuing to grow. There is a lot of literature about what declining economic powers that also have rising military capabilities, uh, what the strategic calculus or the menu of strate strategic options are. And frankly, none of them are really comforting. So I'm <laughs> that scenario is it, it presents, as you say, a whole new pro uh, problem set for not just the United States, but for allies and partners around the world. Because if China is in that situation, they're in a window that from a long-term perspective is closing. I got this idea actually from Matt Pottinger. I won't, I won't claim credit for it myself, but you know, he, he was talking to me about this, this possibility that, uh, that even if China is a, a declining economic power, or even is just not as successful economically as many people expect, that that doesn't mean that, it's all, that China is no longer a threat, that it could yes. continue to be an expanding military threat. And he actually pointed to what Russia, modern Russia under, under Putin, which has obviously been a struggling economy for quite some time yet, you know, he, he seems to continue to be a security threat around the world. So it, you know, it, it raises the also kind of the possibility that the Chinese may be foreseeing that they've reached their economic peak or uh, they may struggle economically going forward, may, may believe that their opportunity to gain more power is, is now, not later, that this is, their, this is their opportunity. And that would mean, for example, that when they would make a military, an attempt to kind of military reunify with Taiwan now, thinking that they're better off doing it now than later. It's, it's actually kind of, a, kind of a scary idea because I know I've always thought about it. Well, if China's economy stalls, then China stalls as, as a great power. But that's not necessarily true. If the economy stalls, you could actually see the government become more aggressive. That, you know, the, the message that the current Chinese government has delivered to its people is that, you know, you let us rule the country and you're going to get rich. Well, what if the, the second part of that deal doesn't quite work out anymore? What if you don't see incomes growing like you have? What if the country isn't getting richer? Okay, well, then what's the deal? What's the, what's the social contract? And maybe it becomes something actually an outgrowth of what you're already seeing, which is growing nationalism, uh, which is, you know, part of the Xi Jinping message is that you let us rule and we'll make China great again. And that that could mean more than economically. It could mean that China is going to right these perceived wrongs of the century of humiliation and be a more aggressive political and military power. And if that if that is one of these the possible future Chinas, one of the one of these one of these outcomes, then that requires a different strategy from the U.S. I, I feel that Washington right now is very focused, as probably Washington should be, 
on the economic aspects of this competition of, of increasing uh, U.S. competitiveness economically and dealing with China as a rising economic challenge to American global economic dominance and technological leadership. But what if that's not the direction that China goes in? Then, then you're, you're looking at potentially something that we don't talk about as much, which is the rising likelihood of this becoming a more of a more of a Cold War style, you know, military confrontation, which in some ways is, as you mentioned, possibly the scariest outcome. Again, I'm not going to pretend to have the answers to all of this, but I think these are the right now these are the questions that we need to be asking about China and not not to make simple assumptions about where China's going, either because of its recent success or because of its historical pattern. You know, just because dynasties have risen over and over again doesn't mean that the current government is going to be a rising dynasty. There are many dynasties and wannabe dynasties in Chinese history that looked really, really promising at the time and never quite made it. Uh, And so nothing is inevitable and certainly nothing is inevitable in the next 10, 10 10 or 20 years. I think that note is the perfect one to conclude on. The point of these conversations, as you say, is not to know the answer or to present one scenario as this is what will happen. The point is to test different scenarios through policymaking and to see how it squares up against reality, how your uh, competitor or adversary reacts to it and approach competition through a learning process, not as a top-down approach. And I think this whole conversation provides a really helpful framework to start engaging in competition with the CCP in that way. So Michael, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I think our listeners will too. Thank you so much for chatting today. Thanks again for having me on. Great conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.